Okay, I mentioned that we are, and you can see on, on the screen, that we are on Exodus 24 tonight, verses 1 through 18. That's the whole chapter. Um, and if you have an ESV Bible, you will see that, that this whole chapter fits under one heading, which they entitle The Covenant Confirmed. So if you're thinking that we talked about the covenant not very long ago, um, you would be, be right. It was a couple of months ago when we, when we started the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments are a covenant document. They're a covenant made by the great king, by God, with uh, subjects. And the Ten Commandments take a form of, they take the form of a covenant. Well, that was Exodus 20. Um, and Exodus 24 takes place not long after Exodus 20, maybe just, maybe just a few days later um, than we get to Exodus 24. So um, the covenant often includes, the covenant often includes some benefits for people, for the subjects of a king, if they keep the terms of the covenant. And, and so this is after the Ten Commandments. Uh, and, and last week we finished up the, what is called the Book of the Covenant, or is, is thought to be the Book of the Covenant, which runs from after the Ten Commandments until the end of, of chapter 3. And mostly, as you will remember, it's mostly case law about how you apply the Ten Commandments. But toward the end of that, toward the end of, of chapter 3, uh, in the Book of the Covenant, God lays out some benefits for the people of Israel if they will keep the terms of the covenant. So Exodus uh, 23, this is a review from last week, um, verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him. And obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So this is, this is part of the benefit package that comes along with Israel keeping the covenant. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So uh, now that moves us right into Exodus 24 which, again, I mentioned the ESV says this is the covenant confirmed, and it is largely, this chapter largely is about the covenant that needs to be formalized. So there's going to be a ceremony to formalize this covenant. And it is about God taking his people to be his own people, taking the people of Israel to be his own people. And so there will be a, cer a ceremony about that, and there will be a meal that goes along with the covenant. So those are things that are going to be in chapter uh, 24, and you might be thinking, well, what, what's the big deal about the covenant? Why are we spending so much time talking about the covenant, especially this covenant that was made on, on Sinai? Well, well, God thinks that covenants are a big deal. And God spends a lot of times on covenants, and covenants are the means or the, the motivation for some of the Lord's actions. If you just think back to Exodus 6, if you can think back that far, it's been a while. But Exodus 6, you will remember this, this passage once we start it, but... This is from Exodus 6, so I want you to pay attention to what God thinks of the covenant. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, 
But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. So here the Lord refers back to the covenant that he made with Abraham. And says, this is the basis on which I even brought you out of slavery. That's why I brought you out of slavery. Because of that. To bring you this land that I promised you. That's all part of his covenant with, with Abraham. So a covenant has really, in its simplest form, just three main parts. You have the person making the covenant. This is a covenant of unequals in this case. You have the people who are receiving the covenant or who are who will uh, uphold the covenant, and then you have words. The words that are the agreement of the covenant. Covenants might also have a mediator, and that's what we have in, in this covenant at Sinai. Somebody to go between the king and his subject, or the kings and his lesser rulers. So, this is... Then, uh, in keeping with the ESV's general idea about how to put a heading on this, this is the confirmation of Yahweh's covenant at Mount Sinai. Now, notice that it's the Lord's covenant. It's, it's Yahweh's covenant. It's the one that he makes with the people. He sets the terms. Uh, he puts it into place. It's the Lord that does this. So, and here's, here's the thesis or the, the big idea or the, the takeaway. Uh, the covenant at Mount Sinai was not without fault. Now that might sound blasphemous at first, right? Just think about that. The Lord makes the covenant with his people. And, and could it be that the covenant is faulty? Well, just so that you know that we're not headed down the wrong path here, um, you remember that Jesus says this, right? You remember that he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. So Pastor Randy repeats that every five weeks, right, at, at our communion service. This is the new covenant in my blood, and Hebrews 8.7, so Hebrews is the place where this, this, the reference to this covenant in the New Testament is most clear uh, throughout the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 8.7 says this, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So there's our word. If the first covenant had not been without fault, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So, that is what is written in the New Testament about this covenant. That word that was translated faultless or without fault um, can also be blameless, without blame. If this covenant were without blame, there would have been no need to seek out a second. So the covenant at Mount Sinai was not without fault. And we're going to look at four different things and to just to talk about that. One is the mediator. 
The second one, one of the parties of the agreement, the blood of the covenant, and the view of the glory of God that is in Exodus chapter 24. So first of all, the mediator. Then he said to Moses, so this is, this is God, we're talking about God when it says he said to Moses. Then he said to Moses, come up to Yahweh, or come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadav and Avihu and the seventy of the elder and seventy of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. So, so God is not speaking directly to the people anymore like he did with the Ten Commandments. He's now speaking through Moses. So who are these people that he wants to come up to meet with him, to worship him from afar, I should say? So, first of all, Moses, right? Aaron, his brother, uh, Nadav and Avihu are Aaron's sons, who would be future priests. Uh, you, you hear about them also in, in Leviticus. They're most famous for what happens in, in Leviticus, where they offer strange fire uh, before the Lord. And then 70 of the elders of Israel. So we don't know how many elders there were, but we know that 70 of them it's not the 70 elders of Israel. It's 70 of the elders of Israel are to come up and to worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to Yahweh, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So the first thing you can tell here is although they're going up together, the people are going up together, the 70 elders, Avihu, uh, and Nadav, and, and Aaron, and Moses. That Moses is different. Moses is different from the 70. He's different from Aaron. He's different from his, Aaron's sons. He is God's chosen leader. He led the people out of Egypt. He led them across the Red Sea. He led them through battle. And he is God's chosen spokesman, as we've already seen. God speaks to Moses. When, Mo- when God wants to speak to Moses, he speaks with Moses. When God wants to speak with the people, he speaks with Moses. Moses is the go-between um, between God and the people now. And, and it's a big deal that, that the people pay attention to Moses. God wants the people to pay attention to Moses. Here's what he says at the end of, um, or in Exodus 19, before the Ten Commandments are given. Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud. This is God speaking to Moses. That the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe in you forever. So Moses, it's a big deal to God that the people believe him And it's because he is the mediator of this covenant. He is the representative of God to the people, and he represents the people back to God. So so Moses was really a special person. He he really was a special person. There are a couple of references here that I want to look at. Um, not going to put them on the screen, but, but in, in the chapter of Acts, when, when Stephen um, is recounting what happened uh, in, the, in Israel's history up till the time of Christ, and including the time of Christ, he says this about Moses. This is in Acts 7, um, beginning in verse 20. At this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, in other words, when they put him out in the river to, for him to die, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed 
in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Mighty in his words and deeds. Something that he didn't take credit for um, in when God spoke to him about going, about going to represent him before Pharaoh. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, here's another section about Moses. Deuteronomy 34, verses 10, and to the end of, uh, end of the chapter. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. There's nobody like Moses. Whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt. To Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. So Moses was a great man. There's there's nobody like him. There's been nobody like him among human beings. So there couldn't have been a better mediator of this covenant at Sinai than Moses. But Moses was only a man. Moses was not God. So Moses didn't have the ability, for instance, to forgive sin, to forgive the trespasses of the people of Israel. He didn't have any way to pay for the sins of the people that he was represented. He, He could not even pay for his own sins, let alone those of the people. And that's why Paul writes to Timothy in his first letter to Timothy, there is one God. There is one mediator between God and men. The man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So so Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy under the New Covenant. So the mediator of the Old Covenant was not faultless. He was not able to do the things that Jesus Christ is able to do as mediator between God and man. After all, Jesus Christ is God. He can forgive sins. He is man. He can sympathize with all our weaknesses. He's in every respect like we are, and in every respect like God. And he was able to bring about the forgiveness of sins for all those under his covenant. So there have been a lot of great men in history and a lot of great women in history, and and it's easy for us in our country to, to think, well, we don't want to trust our leaders too much, right? Um, but the same holds true for, for our leaders, um, our Christian leaders. You know, there have been a lot of great people over history. You've got, you've got people like um, the Apostle Paul, right? You've got, you got Augustine. Now, some of us would say John Calvin was, was a great, great man in history. Some might be more modern. I mean, think people like Corey Ten Boom. A lot of people to look up to. Um, but we have to remember that, even, that, that leaders fall, right? Some have survived and, and are good examples from history, but we should not put our hope in people. We, just like the people of Israel could not count on Moses to do everything for them. They couldn't, he couldn't forgive their sins. He couldn't do that. And... We need to make sure that we don't put our trust in people as well. We trust in God. So the second thing, um, the second point here is one of the parties to the agreement, beginning in verse 3. And Moses came and told the people all the words of Yahweh, and all the rules, or all the judgments would be another way to, to say that. So this is written this way on purpose, with where you would think it would be enough to say just all the words of Yahweh. 
Well, it's, it's because the Ten Commandments, when God gives the Ten Commandments, it says he gave them the words. These are the words. Or these are the things. These are the ten things. And when he gave the, all that case law that we talked about, it was these are the judgments or these are the rules as the ESV points out or translates it. So he's making a point here that Moses is coming down to tell the people everything in the Ten Commandments, even though they've already heard that, and everything in the Book of the Covenant, although they haven't heard that. So Moses is coming down to do that or coming to tell the people that. Um, and when he does that, the people say this. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. So, remember how the book of the covenant ended, saying, If you indeed keep these words, then I will be an enemy to your enemies. Then I will be an adversary to your adversaries. Well, that would have been just right before this. They would have heard this, and so they probably had really good intentions about this. We will do that. You're going to take us into the promised land. You're going to fight for us. You're going to do these things for us. We will do all that you say. And so they've, they, they've just heard these words from Moses. They've seen the fire and the smoke on the mountain. They've heard Yahweh speaking the words of the covenant out loud, out loud the Ten Commandments. They have heard the trumpet. They have heard all these things. And they've just heard the things that Moses told them. And they're probably really sincere. Kind of like we are often. really sincere about how we're going to change our lives, to pattern them after Christ, to be disciples of Jesus Christ, to, to learn his words and to do them. And we have really good intentions, right? But we might not be a lot better at them than, than some of the Israelites were. But we know that they didn't do this, right? They didn't do all the words that the Lord had spoken to them. So, so you could see how, that, how hard that could be, especially if you've been here for the last couple months. And, and you know, we've talked about the Ten Commandments and all the things that go along with that and all the interpretations of the, or all the, the case law that goes along with that, how you apply the Ten Commandments. You go, I could never do that. Well, that, that's true. It's true. We could never do that. So that's exactly what the author of the Hebrew of Hebrews wrote or meant when he wrote. For it is for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion for a second. So the next couple of verses after that say this. So this is Hebrews chapter 8 um, verses. That was just verse 7 I read. So I'm going to read 8 and 9. Or I'll start from 7 again. For if that first covenant had been had for if that first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And here's why. For they did not continue in my covenant. So that's a fault of the covenant with the, one of the parties in the covenant. They did not continue in my 
covenant. And so I showed them no concern, declares the Lord. So God is, you can see here, He is intent on a new covenant, a better covenant, a covenant without fault when He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. So, and this is, this is the greatest fault with the covenant that was made at, at Sinai, is, is that one of the parties just can't do it. We are not able. We are too sinful. We are too rebellious against God. We are not able to, to keep it. Third, the blood of the covenant. And Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. So the people have already said they're going to do them. He's told them to them, so now he's going to write them down. They're going to be written words. And he rose early in the morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. So, so what is he doing? Well, he's preparing for what I mentioned earlier is a, is a covenant ceremony. So this is, what, this is what's going to happen next in this chapter is there's going to be a covenant ceremony. Um, and, here's, and here's what it says about that. And he said, sent the young men, or he sent young men. So this is Moses sent young men of the people of Israel. So who were these? They were, they were probably the fir- representatives of the firstborn of, of Israel who were to be given to, dedicated to Yahweh, whom the Levites eventually replace as the priests um, and, and those who care for those things. So there was no priesthood yet. So the young men that are dedicated to the Lord... Um, would be the ones who Moses calls on. And they are the ones who offered the burnt offerings and, the, and sacrificed peace offerings to, of oxen to Yahweh. So, so notice what these are. Burnt offerings, peace offerings. Okay, so they're not sin offerings and, and guilt offerings. They're a different thing. This is associated this is associated with making the covenant. And Moses took half of the blood. Remember this section's talked about the blood of the covenant. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. So what is what's this about? Well, it this is a covenant ceremony. Um, there are different kinds of covenant ceremonies uh, described in Scripture. Not a lot of them, but there are a few that, that, that give us something like this, like when Abraham, when the Lord made his covenant with Abraham, uh, Abraham splits animals, and then the Lord walks between them, um, basically saying this, is, this may probably mean something like this, may... Those who make for those making the covenant, you know, if I violate this covenant, may I be like one of these animals? Okay, so that's probably what happens in Abraham. This is this is a little bit different because these are the sacrifices that that the young men are offering. So he takes half of the blood and he throws it against the the altar. Now, if you have something besides ESV, you might have something like. Um, I think New American Standard is splashed, something like that. Maybe that's it. Maybe NIV. Um, there's sprinkled is also one. Um, some commentators would call it splattered. Um, it's the same. It's the same word when when Moses throws up dust in the air um, and it turns to gnats. So it's the same kind of things. He threw it. He scattered it. He splattered it. He did something with it. And then he took the book of the covenant. Now, so this is probably what 
what he just told the people that he had just written down. And he read it in hearing of the people. So what's going on? So they've, they've, got, the, they've got the sacrifices. Half of the blood is thrown on the altar. Um, on the altar. He takes the book of the covenant. He reads them. So he's rereading in this ceremony the thing that they've already agreed to. It's written down now. It's a written down covenant. And then they repeat all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do, and we will obey, or we will be obedient. So, so we, we know that they've already said this, so this is part of the ceremony. And the Lord certainly knows that they are not going to be able to do this, that they will not do this. He knows all things. God knows that they're not going to obey, and yet he goes ahead and makes a covenant with, with this people, knowing that they will violate it, knowing that they will not follow it. But he loves his people, and so he makes this covenant with them. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. So the covenant, Yahweh, notice Yahweh makes the covenant with them. And he does it in accordance with the words that are written down. So, so there are the three main components of the covenant again. The one making it, the Lord, the people, and the words are to be governed by the words of the covenant. So there, there's something else interesting in these verses that, that we just went right over to get to that point. But it's this. And Moses took the blood. So, so what is this? So this is the other half of the blood. Right? This is the blood that was in the basins. Then he took half the blood, remember, and threw it on the altar. Um, the other half... He put in basins. So, the other half of the blood he throws on the people. Oh, that seems kind of... That's kind of gross, isn't it? Just think about that. I mean, just think about he is throwing the blood on the people. So, So, what is this about? Again, it's tied to the covenant... Ceremony, And it's interesting to read the various perspectives on, on what this blood was supposed to do. You know, some think, well, you know, it's a means of sanctification to, for the people to be able to do there. It's a means of, that, of acceptance, that they're accepting this covenant with God. Um, it could mean something like, and this one to me makes the most sense, that they're binding their, themselves with a blood oath. That they're saying... Yes, we will keep this commandment, these commandments, this, this covenant that we have. So, as people who, as Christian people who believe the Bible, as, as people, people who are in a church that believes the Bible, we hear about the blood of Christ. We just sang a couple of songs about the blood of Christ, although we don't sing songs like that very often anymore. You know, we don't sing... Thing, uh, sing things like, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, very often. Um, but the New Testament talks about the blood of Jesus a lot. Way more, really, than we, than we realize. Probably we read over it just because we don't think about it very much. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we like that, we remember that, right? We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Hebrews 9.22 Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no 
forgiveness of sin. So, so we, we hear these things a lot, but I think that just because of the way that we, our society has gone and the way that, that things have happened, we don't notice them. We tend to read over them, but they're, they're very prominent. Um, so, so we've kind of that sterilized the blood would be the wrong way to say it. Um, but we've kind of chosen not to think about it. Or to cho- we've chosen to say other words. Because they're true too, like, like this. I delivered to you the things that were of, of first importance. That Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. It doesn't mention blood. So we, we, we choose to think about that. And, and there has been, in the past at least, not, I'm not saying from people here, but in Christianity as a whole, a concerted effort to not saying about there is a fountain filled with blood. Because it's gross. It sounds gross. And, it, and we don't want to offend people. We don't want to... We, want to, we would rather say things like Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We would rather say that. You know... Um, we don't like bloody things. I mean, we, we shy away from bloody things, and that's, that's built into us on purpose, of course, because, because we're not supposed to shed blood, and so life is in the blood, and, and so we, we, we shy away from those things. We, we want to avoid mo- movies that are too bloody. Um, we don't want our kids to see things that are too bloody. Um, you know, a few years ago, there was a movie, you guys, most of you have probably seen it. It was too bloody, for most people, the passion of the Christ, right? So, um, I actually like I actually like the movie, but but because I think it it makes us it makes us realize it makes us feel not only sorrow but the but the weight of our sin. That it's a, it makes us realize how serious our sin is and, and what God has done. And, and I think that sometimes if we don't deal with the seriousness of sin, we have a hard time really communicating what the good news is. God is our creator and he has the absolute right over us he's holy he's just there's no darkness in him and we have all sinned against him and that is that means we've rebelled against him that means we have deliberately become his enemy God hates sin, despises sin. Anybody who sins is worthy of death, and more than that, worthy of God's anger and worthy of God's wrath. And so God hates sin, but he loves his people. He loves the world, and so he sent Jesus. And this is the gospel. To die for sin. To pour out his blood for sin. To be slaughtered for sin. I was listening to a sermon um, not long ago. I think it was, I think it was John Piper. And he just was, was quoting that the passage from Revelation saying, you know, worthy is the lamb who is slain. Better translation. Worthy is the lamb who is slaughtered like a sacrifice, slaughtered. That's, that was Piper's point. So without blood, without Christ's blood, the, our sin is so serious that, that, that we could never be saved. Remember Jesus in the garden says, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. 
There is no other way. But through the blood of Jesus. And the, and the, and the really good news is that, that when God gives us a new heart, makes he's, it's this new covenant he talks about, that he's been talking about, that we've been talking about, the covenant without fault. He put, gives us a new heart, and we respond to him with faith and repentance. Because there's no way for us to pay for that sin. There's no way. Jesus is the only way. And it's only by his sacrifice. So the blood of the covenant at Sinai could not forgive sins. Even though, you know, this, we think of blood as, for, as being a means of forgiveness. And well, first of all, it was a different kind of sacrifice. And then secondly, secondly, the blood of bulls and goats can never forgive sin. It never could, never will. But Jesus, under the new covenant, the better covenant, the covenant without fault, offered himself, his blood, as a sacrifice for our sins. And because of that, we can boldly enter God's presence. So the last part of this, the fourth point, uh, is the view of the glory of God. So we've got about half the chapter left, and it, it won't take as long to go through that as the first half, but... Um, then Moses and Aaron and Nadav and Avihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. So remember that God called them to go up. He commanded them to go up. We had this interruption of the covenant ceremony, and now they're going up. So the covenant ceremony is over. So these elders um, and, pre- and future priests go up with Moses And then they did this, and they saw the God of Israel. So, so what does that mean, right? So this is after the covenant ceremony. They go up at least partway onto the mountain. Mo- Moses is going to go up farther, so, so they probably just go partway up on the mountain. So what does it mean? I thought I remembered things like nobody's ever seen God. Nobody's seen God at any time. That's, that's John 1.18. And, and we know that, that at the end of Exodus, or towards the end of Exodus, when, when Moses asks to, show, to see God, God says, No, my glory will pass before you. Um, you can see my back. You can't see my face, because nobody can see me and live. And so, what does this mean? Well, from the context, if we look at the rest of the verse, it helps a little bit. And there was under his feet, and there was his feet, as it were, under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness, or or this... I think the New American Standard reads better here. And under his feet, there appeared to be, or there was something like, a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. So notice what what doesn't happen is, is Moses doesn't tell us what God looked like. He just mentions that under his feet, there was something that looks like pavement of sapphire, um, and it's clear, like the sky. So that is, that is really, really close to the, the description of what Ezekiel sees in, uh, in a vision in Ezekiel chapter 1 about, about the, there's a throne, and underneath it, there is something like sapphire, which is the sky. So this is a view into heaven. Um, and again, we don't know exactly what it, it doesn't tell us what they, what they saw of God. They just, describe, they just know that it's under his feet. They see this sapphire stone or something that looks like that. 
So let's also look then um, a little bit farther. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. So that means God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, of the people who were up there. It seems to be an exception to, for no man shall see me and live. He did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. So this is more than the rest of the people of Israel are going to see. This is, this is the, the people who went up with Moses. And they beheld God, or that could mean, that could be translated, and they saw a vision of God, much like uh, different words in Ezekiel, but, but much like Ezekiel saw where he sees a vision of, of God in uh, Exodus, or in, excuse me, in Ezekiel chapter 1. Then they beheld God, and they ate and they drank. So that's the covenant meal. So the covenants are usually uh, in the Old Testament accompanied by a meal. And so they saw some manifestation of God here, but we don't know what it was like. Then Yahweh said to Moses, then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So so now the Lord calls Moses up past the others who are who are there, and he is going up on the mountain by himself, and then it mentions this. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, So this is as Moses is going up. Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. So this this is what Moses normally does. It settles the big disputes. But but he's got fill-ins. Then Moses went up on the mountain. And the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of Yahweh dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it for six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of all the people of Israel. So so this is how most of the people of Israel, what they saw of the Lord, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a fire on top of the mountains. So undoubtedly, no question that, that when, when John writes his gospel, he is referring to this, this covenant on Mount Sinai, including what, come, what will come later, which is the tabernacle. That, that God will take up residence in the tabernacle at the end of, of Exodus. But here's what he writes, John chapter, and you, you know these verses. John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory. So this is the way that the people saw the glory, as a consuming fire on the top of a mountain. And we have beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the side of the Father, he has made him known. 
John reflecting on the better covenant than the Sinai covenant, on what they saw of the glory of God. And we know that, that what, what we see, what, what they saw, what we see in the pages of Scripture is that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is, again, from Hebrews. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So so just to let you know what's coming up here, 40 days and 40 nights, Moses is going to be up there. God told us what his purpose was. He's going to give him... He's going to give him the Ten Commandments on stone tablets, all prepared by God. So we don't see that, those for a while. So this is chapter 24 verses, or chapters 25 through 31 are going to be instructions about the tabernacle. So at the end of those seven chapters, Moses is going to come down from the mountain. So that this all is going, these next several chapters, these next seven chapters, are all going to be while Moses is up on the mountain. So the next thing that happens in the storyline is, is in chapter 32. So this also marks a shift in what happens in, in Exodus from coming out of of. Egypt, God rescuing his people and now taking them to be his own people and teaching them to worship. So here's what we saw was that the covenant at Sinai was not without fault because we have a better mediator in our covenant, right? And Hebrews says that it's now obsolete. So we aren't able to fulfill the terms, but Christ forgives our sins, And the blood of the covenant is Christ's covenant, the new covenant in his blood. And we have a much better picture of the Lord. So we we exist under a much better covenant. So let's uh, close in prayer, and then we will sing our final hymn. Father, we do thank you that, that, that you have cut a better covenant with us, that you have made a better covenant with your people than the one that was on Mount Sinai, one that we could never uphold, we could never fulfill. Thank you for the grace and truth that comes through Jesus Christ as the mediator of the new covenant. Thank you for the better promises that are part of this covenant that we live under today. Lord, and we pray that the word of this covenant, the word of the gospel, the good word of of Jesus Christ would would make headway in this world. I would pray that, that all nations, all families of the earth would be blessed in him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.